that there is a distinction between discomfort and danger. And the more we practice that change, the more we grow. So for the good of ourselves and the good of our collective, we want to move into celebrating, wading in the waters of our own discomfort. Because you cannot teach what you do not know. And people struggle to be what they cannot see. So if you want to make change in society, it has to start within. Welcome to What's Off, the podcast where we shine the spotlight on off-Broadway innovation. Each episode features interviews with trailblazing artists, administrators, service providers, and other theater workers in the off and off-off-Broadway community. I'm your host, Nikki Maggio. And I'm your other host, Ashley J. Hicks, a.k.a. Ash. At the top of the episode, we played an excerpt of a soundscape created and performed by our guest, Rebecca Kelly G., Rebecca has synthesized her background as a performer and a civil rights attorney to help other individuals and organizations bring their full selves to their work. She's an equity consultant who's particularly invested in working with people of color to shed their internalized racial oppression as well as shift organizational culture away from white supremacy. Her work is really all about caring for the people who make up arts organizations. In addition to facilitating organizational and BIPOC-focused retreats, Rebecca is a sound artist and speaker. In a unique blend of public speaking and performance, she weaves vocal harmonies with percussive sounds to create meditative soundscapes accompanied by storytelling and affirmations. Interviewing Rebecca is our very own co-executive director, Risa Shoup. Earlier this season, Risa conducted interviews for our special episode, The Caregivers, Bringing Our Entire Selves. Rebecca Kelly G was originally scheduled to be included in that episode, but we were so taken away by her story that we wanted to shine a special spotlight on her. So let's get into it. And listeners, make sure to stick around for a post-interview discussion with Risa, Nikki, and myself, as well as an extended soundscape journey with Rebecca Kelly G. Enjoy. Talking with Rebecca was thrilling. After we reviewed my interview with Rebecca, it became crystal clear to us that what Rebecca noticed was off had to do with her experience as a person working within some highly professionalized systems, the legal system, theatrical productions and institutions, the education system, and more. All of these systems thrive or are challenged by people who contain far more than what is demanded of them by a job description. As a manager, I am confident that my employees are the most productive and creative when they feel their whole selves are welcome and supported at work. It was affirming and motivating to discuss this as it relates to the theater industry with Rebecca. The theater industry is working through a lot of very destabilizing challenges right now. So it's mission critical that we support our staff members as full people so they can bring the best, most creative solutions to the table. 
We begin by hearing about Rebecca's artistic practice, her artist self being one of her most inspiring roles. Um, so yeah, I am going to jump in. Question one. Okay. Um, how do you name and uh, describe your artistic process? I create vocal soundscapes, um, and they are informed by various experiences I've had, creating more space internally and learning how to move intentionally. Well, straight up to describe it, when I make soundscapes, what I do is it will be either I just had an experience or um, something will just come to me, a particular sound will come to me. So that came to me once while I was changing my daughter's diaper. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, there's something in that for me. And so I'll start it and then I'll just wait and see internally if I hear. Really, it's like feel into another sound that complements that one. And I was going through some things and I thought, oh, let me just make some sounds about it. And I started making them and what was done, I thought, I like that. <laughs> I like that. And I feel like it communicates a feeling that I was having, and it was grief at that time, and it was like, oh, this sounds like that, and it, but it sounds like grief, grief that's like layered with hope in it, and that felt important to me, mm. and because the sounds were so helpful to me, once I would make them, I thought, oh, let me bring them to other places, so then when I would do workshops or engage with other people, I would start with that, and I think, you know, as I'm saying it, I have this kind of belief that if I'm playing for you, anyone who's listening, pieces of my healing process that I've discerned are to be shared, I think it has the potential to speak to a part of you that also is longing and wishing for your authenticity, for mm -hmm. your creativity, and brings you present into the now, so that now whatever it is we're gonna talk about, whatever difficult thing we're gonna talk about, you have a little more space to talk about it, and I have a little more space to really listen and be present enough to know, oh, we should go in this direction or not that direction, or, oh, this person has something to say. You know, just, just more openness, more spaciousness and more connection for all of us when we do, um, when, we, when we listen to something like that and then we do our work together. And that's actually been really echoed for me. I've been reading um, Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands. And in that, he talks about some ways to build community and connection and one of them is singing, clapping. Well, I said one, but I'm listening to many. <laughs> singing, clapping, breathing, humming. And that just felt like an affirmation. Like, uh-huh, yeah, I feel inside that I knew that, and I've practiced that. So it was just, it's always nice to see the things back by research, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is also why it's not always needed, but it is nice. And it feels affirming to me. And it's why also when I do work with spaces, I try to speak to the different ways that we all learn and experience things, you know? So we're not, we're not just gonna do sounds. We're not just gonna look at data. We're not just gonna make plays together. We're gonna do all of those things. We're gonna be able to read things. We're gonna engage in an interactive activity, just the different ways that people that people work. So that's that's how I use that's how I use my sounds, what I name them. I think I'll leave that for other people. People can tell me <laughs> what they would name the experience that they had. I don't I don't really have a name for it other than vocal soundscapes. Um, and can you talk to us a little more about about your workshops, what you do with people? Mm. So my work has evolved in many ways over time mm -hmm. on learning oppressive conditions, beliefs. And creating more space 
for trust in ourselves and in what people can do together when we're all actively trying to listen to ourselves and trust in ourselves and in one another, because I think the more you trust in yourself, the more you can trust in other people. Practically speaking, that began as me doing um, anti-racism work and anti-racism workshops. And to me, there's a lot of different factors in that because again, being anti-racist, there's things to do, but there's a lot of uh, internal work that needs to happen. And actually I'll say it by going like this. So we're thinking about um, the facets of oppression or the facets of racism. There's internalized racism, the way I think about myself, there's interpersonal, the ways, the way, so the way that I think about and interact with other people, that's informed by the way I think about myself. Institutional, the way that those ideas I just mentioned about myself and other people, the way those manifest into policies and practices. And then structural, the way that multiple institutions holding that same ideology support those oppressive practices with one another, kind of enshrining them for generations. My workshops, I try to focus as much as I can and at least touch on a level of understanding of all of those. But currently, what I'm really excited about and turning a lot of my attention to is supporting wellness practices. But wellness, uh, I'm shrinking. <laughs> because <laughs> when I say wellness, I think it can sometimes be really focused on self. And I don't mean that. I mean the wellness as in um, ridding yourself of internalized oppression so that you can be well, <laughs> because I see that as like an, an illness that we're holding inside. So that's something I am very invested in. I'm particularly invested in that for people of color to unlearn the ways that we might feel less than towards ourselves or towards each other um, so that we can just internally rise, collectively rise, which is happening and tapping into to ourselves and our power so I'm very invested in that. One of the ways I do that is through Room to Breathe, which is a, um, a retreat, a virtual retreat and in-person retreat for people of color. Um, and sometimes it's people of color at predominantly white institutions. Sometimes it's other people of color. And there are going to be other Room to Breathe actually that are focused on just deconstructing constructs um, to creating the space, then getting a new perspective and saying, well, how do you see it now that you've had a chance to breathe, now that you've had a chance to lay down what do you feel now about your connection to that construct? Oh, and I have to also mention <laughs> that I have a practice um, called ceremony. It's, it's, um, it's a sound, interactive sound experience for people to let go of internalized oppression and make space for abundance. And that's only soundscapes. So that's me guiding people through soundscapes with some um, guided movement that's voluntary, but that's something I'm doing more in person. And there's one that's specifically for people of color, and then there's the other that is for everyone. Thank you. Um, you have also worked as a civil rights attorney, is mm -hmm. that correct? Yes. Um, how has your, how has that work as a civil rights attorney um, affected or informed your practice of care, especially for artists and theater workers? There's so many things that come up with this question for me because I'm going to just tell you this tale, I think, because I started off in musical theater and as an actor, I was a little theater kid, like, you know, always doing the musicals. This is me. This is all, you know, singing, dancing, acting. I'm about it, you know, and that 
was what I focused on in college also, and I started auditioning and everything. But on that um, journey of learning, there was always a, there were many things that would arise. There was a, just a call within me to be involved in social change and wanting to push back on things that were, that were occurring that I saw to be a problem. I was a teenager um, during the Bush era. Growing up during that time, there were just so many things, socially, politically, that I wanted to shift and be a part of changing, but I didn't know how to do that. You know, I was, I was young, and not that you couldn't know, because there are plenty of young people who see the vision and activate on it, but for me at that time, I was not entirely sure how I wanted to go about getting involved in change and being so focused on theater and arts and that being also something that brought me so much joy and openness when I was performing a strong sense of belonging, but when I was in class or noticing, you know, what are these productions or what am I learning? There was a lot of um, communication about who and what I could be as a young black girl. There was a lot of culture white dominant culture of here are the ideas of who you are and how you're supposed to be and here's the ideas of how everyone else, you know there's all these categories of how everyone is supposed to be but for me that was really weighing on me and felt I felt like there was this um request or demand that if I wanted to be successful in this I was going to need to learn how to impersonate the stereotype that white supremacy culture had of me and I wasn't interested in that, and I wasn't interested in that, and it brought up a lot of tension for me. And when I say I wasn't interested in that, I say it now with, like, I wasn't interested in that, with kind of like a, you know, people can't see me, but a toss of the hand. <laughs> but then it was difficult. It felt like a really strong tension, because I loved the arts and performing so much, but they felt like, oh, I have to choose whether I can be myself or engage in any kind of social change work or be an artist and so it's that's the the binary choice I felt then and so it seemed like okay well then I'm gonna go engage in social change because I don't want to minimize myself and I don't want to have to impersonate some version of myself that isn't true to me so saying all this to say yes I'm a civil rights attorney and these are the things that came before that so that's what that's where I was before that mm -hmm. and I decided to start exploring what it looked like to be more involved in social change and what I felt at the time was like very indicative of my personality probably, but I was like, well, I feel like I focused on theater and that's where my energy has been. And I don't know as much just the way that I had approached things about how our structures of government worked or how were the laws and things that were being put in place? How did they get there? How do you get them gone? I just didn't know. And so I thought if, if I go to law school, I'll have a really strong sense of how things are. And then I'll know more clearly how to dismantle them. That was the thought that I had at the time. So I went into law school with that mentality and I focused on civil rights. And I actually, what I felt in my time there was, okay, I want to look at what's going on within education because that feels like one of our major dividing points and Went to Washington, D.C., did work at the school on the school-to-prison pipeline, which are policies and practices that push students of color from the classroom um, and into the justice, no, the legal system. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about programming because that's what, uh -huh. what I was taught, the justice system. So that just, like, pops out of my mouth, but I have to be present. There's nothing just about the system. It's the legal system. That's what it is. But this is not a just system. It's just a system based on laws that we um, live within right now. 
Well, what I found in that space, getting to your question, I promise I'm getting to the answer to your question. No apologies. <laughs> what no I apologies. found in that space was, you know, I went in there like, these are about to be my people. This is, these are the rabble razzlers. This, this is going to be the most radical space and we're all going to be about change. And, and when I got into that space, I found that um, there were just a lot of ways I saw oppression operating. Um, yeah, and just ideas about who, again, who and what people were supposed to do, how were they supposed to um, show up at work, in the workspace, and what we were supposed to advocate for, and what fell under the umbrella of, a, of civil rights and what didn't, and and how to to operate in that space. One thing that happened to me while I was there was I, so I mentioned I was doing a school to prison pipeline work, so I went to Chicago and I... Um, connected with students and teachers, and this is where I first learned about restorative justice practices, restorative justice practitioners, and um, I connected with someone else um, at, to, who could do record expungement to support young people in that. All to say, I saw this as a really holistic thing, like how do we start getting to the root of what's going on here and give resources and tools to the people here to, to move forward and get rid of these policies that are a problem. So I was talking to my um, my boss at the time and explaining kind of here's what who here's who I've been talking to and here's what we're thinking about and here's what, and she said you know Rebecca you're a lawyer not a peacemaker mm. huh? <laughs> for, for y'all who can't see me I'm looking around <laughs> like to me and I felt really hurt by that but it's actually hel it's helpful to me it helpful it gave me a sense of my own orientation like how am I looking at this because for me it's like I know I'm a lawyer but I'm here advocating towards peace. That's the goal here is towards peace. That's why, I mean, at least for me, that's why I do this. So I'm painting all of that to, to say there is a lot of amazing work done by civil rights advocates and attorneys and people, movement lawyers all, all over. So um, I'm not trying to paint a picture of like, it's terrible there and there's no, <laughs> the work isn't getting done. The work is getting done by incredible people. And we all have to find the place that is most true to us and our own expression. And so I had this desire, but that wasn't, it just wasn't this space for me. And that wasn't the only thing, um, but that was something that gave the environment more clarity for me. And when I was thinking about leaving, I thought, you know, I want to, I see, like if you think of things as like a big barrel, mm. and there's a faucet <laughs> and the problem is like dripping out of the sides of the barrel or the problem is coming out of the faucet in the front of the barrel, I felt like I don't want to keep, like I don't want to patch up the sides. I want to just go turn off that faucet. Like that's what I would like to do. And that was what brought me to civil rights work originally because it's more of a structural overall change of a policy or a practice. So that's what drew me to that. It's all needed, but that's what drew me there. But it's the same thing that kind of drew me out because while I was engaging in that work, it was the, the I was just seeing it especially when I did the work with people in Chicago, like this is, a, this is actually very much a people issue. As I was saying before, organizations, institutions are made up of people. It can't just be a policy or a practice. We need to be talking about people and what's happening internally. And I don't necessarily mean um, we need to be focusing on white people accepting people of color. I just mean we need to be looking inside people of color, reactivating our knowledge of who we are and what can we do together to rise up and, and white people looking at how have I been conditioned, what's happening for me. So that, um, 
wasn't happening through civil rights litigation, <laughs> okay? So that's what I was interested in, and that wasn't where that was gonna happen. So I redirected my energy to different spaces. I was still in the education sphere, so for a while I did, I, I taught at American University, Washington College of Law, and I supported law students in teaching public speaking, constitutional law, know your rights kind of thing for high school students, which was something I did when I was in law school as well. So um, I was doing that, and that was closer closer for me of, of people and getting into the people work, but I still felt, because I am an artist at my core, I felt a really deep loss for me that I wasn't integrating that, and I was in a way, there were things um, that I would incorporate into the classroom in ways we would like, you know, end the year and stuff that were very much in the art space and, and fun and you know, singing and arts and all of this, but, but it wasn't feeling enough for me, I was feeling a really big gap from my own expression, so came back to New York City, did work in the arts activist space. And as I started doing that at particular different varying organizations, I noticed, again, I, I, when I entered, I'm like, okay, now I'm with my people. Because <laughs> these are the artists, these are the activists, they understand the intersection of creativity, of change, of all of this. Um, and, and that is true. And I started noticing a lot of the behaviors and patterns that I was seeing in the office culture were exactly the same, not even... Not even like, oh yeah, but it's exactly the same, but maybe you know, there's a poetry at the beginning or something like that, but the policies were the same. So that's when I started understanding this to be a pattern. I've been using um, white supremacy culture and, and these things now because I have an understanding of what those things are now. I'd started to develop my own way of communicating with other people about social change, about policies and practices and all of this. Um, and so I started creating my own practice and work of working with artists in social change spaces on how to engage in deep self-reflection individually, organizationally, and start taking steps forward or start moving forward in a new way. So I was kind of doing that and working in you know, arts activist spaces and also kind of building my own practice. And then at a point when I started really seeing these consistent similarities, I went on to do that full time. I committed to myself and started working with places because in particular, the social justice space and the artist space at that time, this is not true now, but at that time, were a little more resistant to having conversations about ways that they might be perpetuating oppression or contributing to all the things that they were advocating against. I felt like this is a space that needs it, and these are the places I'm familiar with. I know about social justice work. I understand about work, working as an artist and working as an artist for social change. I understand these communities, and I understand what's happening here, and so I, I think that I'm equipped to support it, and so I created a practice that really fused in devised theater, music, information, research with... Um, my ability to facilitate to support people on that self-reflection and moving forward journey and what you can do to move forward. I'm supporting spaces in unlearning the things that have pushed you away potentially from your deepest self, from your humanity, from how, from knowing how to connect with another person or to even remember when we're in a workspace that you are still in community with other mm -hmm. people. These are just other people that you know and you're doing something together. You're all working together towards some type of North Star, whatever that may be. And 
anything that we have inside that says, um, this is what it means to do that professionally, or this is what it means to do that correctly, is kind of a learning. And so I see myself as supporting people in unlearning the ideas that you have to be different than who you are or how you are. Mm -hmm. And do you also find that in, in supporting people to unlearning that they somehow have to be different uh, in order to do whatever is being asked of them at work, et cetera, do you also find that the people with whom you are working reflect that um, they found more creativity, more capacity, um, a deeper understanding of something by being their whole selves? Mm. So yes. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, yes and. I think what I find is people do have more space, but the creation of space inside and accessing creativity Reaccessing our creativity takes a lot of work, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I think it's it can feel like, oh, I want to make a change. I think this is true personally. It's, it's my experience. And what I see organizationally, it's like, oh, I want to change and create more space. Or I want to be more creative. Or, or I want to embrace conflict. Or I want to um, slow down. So let's just let's do that. Mm -hmm. it, it takes a lot of time because the ways, going back to us all being people, organizations, institutions, those are all made up of individual human beings and then those people are making policies or breaking policies and engaging in particular ways and all of those people come from their own specific areas of life, their own socialization, their own hometown, their own family, their own whatever forms of education they've had throughout their lives and all of those inform the way that you might do something. And I'm saying all that to say, so if you want to change many times, there's a lot of little doors and keys that have to get turned to make the kind of change that you want. Accessing your creativity or spaciousness or slowing down. I feel like that's a, that's a big part of conversation, which I love right now is slowing down, but getting out of a sense of urgency and rush, like we were just talking about in the soundscape, it's, it's, it's radical, it's revolutionary, and it really takes a sense of trust that your worth isn't tied to your productivity or your pace, that you can, as a person or as an organization, produce less and still survive, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, getting back to this question, do I find that? I, I find that when I'm working with Spaces. I'm supporting the individuals within those spaces to see where there are opportunities mm. to build in more creativity, to build in more freedom, or to see where there are limitations and restrictions. And then I'm offering some tools of here's ways that you could, um, you see that little space that you just found through our time together? Here's some things you could do to like make that space even wider. So that's, that's kind of how I see that work, yeah. You, you talked a, about a couple of ways that you've like seen facets of the industry change over time. I really appreciate this this um, thing that you said about how you're seeing the social justice worlds and the arts worlds coming closer together. That is something I, I have seen. I feel like that I align with that, so I'm saying. Um, tell us how you see organizations caring for their people. I do want to talk about that. I also... 
as you were talking, just wanted to uplift, though, the ways that individual artists and people have been demanding that they deserve yes. care. You know, it's um, it's not a shift in the wind. It's like a, an mm -hmm. uprising of the people. And there are so many people who have come together to do that. So I just want to and continue have always and continue to do that. So how do I see organizations caring for their people? So when you ask me that, <laughs> I think what I'm hearing you ask me is how are leaders within organizations changing the way that policies are laid out and the ways that they show up that creates more of an environment of care? That is absolutely part of it. And I am intentionally trying to poke at like the experience of individuals within an institution. Okay. Yeah, well, I'll say this then. What I see happening is the idea of care is coming into institutions and organizations mm -hmm. in a way that I don't, I did not experience or see that happening both personally when I've been within institutions and as I've been consulting with them, within people within institutions. So I think there was a, um, you know, I was saying pattern of dehumanization and lack of care for individuals who are working. Mm -hmm. And having gone to school for theater, again, there's this whole idea of uh, you should not expect <laughs> To be cared for, you should know you're replaceable. Yeah. That's kind of the energy. You should know that you're replaceable. You should know that your value is only what you can do. You know, and it's almost like a, you're supposed to internalize that as a badge of honor. And um, all of that to say, though, so I'm seeing the emphasis on care and humanity beginning to come in. That's what I was saying. Just the idea of caretaking, that we are all human beings working towards something together. That's what's happening here, be it a production or an appellate argument in the Supreme Court, you know, whatever it is that we're working on, we're all, we all have different parts to play in bringing that thing into fruition. And what do we need to play our part the best? Um, it's to have food when we want it, <laughs> take a rest when we need it, it's to have connection with other human beings. It's to have an idea expressed and have other people recognize that and maybe add something else to it and someone else to add something else to that and to really be able to work collaboratively accessing and moving from the places where we feel most equipped to say, I can do something about mm -hmm. that, you know, whether yes. it's like lighting or writing a script or creating a schedule or making the food or whatever it may be, the more we give ourselves and each other care, the greater the thing that we can produce out of any organization and institution. And I don't mean produce, like the greater we can produce for the money. I mean, the greater we can reflect what our vision is for ourselves, for each other, the greater we can reflect it when we can access it. Kind of what mm -hmm. I was saying before, I didn't have access to my soundscapes and my experiences because I had a lot of gunk in here that was making me be a part of urgency culture or thinking that I needed to demonstrate my worth or give, 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 as opposed to like taking a breath, taking space, and like, oh, I hear that sound, what could that mean? And now I have full soundscapes. I used to truly believe, I'm gonna 
put this on a pod. I used to truly believe I didn't have the ability to harmonize. Like that wasn't a skill that I had. And then I did not create music. I couldn't make music. I could just sing other people's music. That was what I truly believed. And I think it's just important for me to always remember that and to state it because I love the soundscapes that I make and they are literally me creating music by harmonizing with myself. So I just want to name the limiting beliefs that were in here when I didn't have space and time to pay attention to what was true because I was so busy. Not so busy. That's too self-judging. I, I was still at going at such a pace that I was things were just sticking mm -hmm. to me and I didn't notice. And then when I could slow down and notice, then I can, you can start, I can, you can, we can, start flicking off, peeling off, <laughs> hoisting off some of the ideas and, uh, that we have about ourselves and that we have about other people. So we're talking about making space. We're talking about refusing urgency culture. You're talking about the flicking off. Um, can you offer us some ways that we might try to to do those things, to flick off, to, to say no to urgency culture, some concrete things that we could try. The first things that come up to me for me like practically for a person is are to listen to and notice the things that you want, the things that excite you and the things that you need that you that you need. And I mean that in the smallest way possible. Oh, I have to go to the bathroom. Oh, I need a glass of water. Oh, I think I just need to lay down for a second. My foot hurts. Whatever it might be, just starting with noticing a need and then experimenting with meeting it for yourself. That would be the first thing that I would say because I think that's the first step on the road of self-actualization and creating space because we can have the programming of this isn't a good time to go to the bathroom. This isn't a good time to have water. I should be dehydrated in this moment because I'm on a pod. I need to have a glass of water <laughs> to have a sip on that note. That was a reflection of my need. Mm -hmm. And when we start doing small things like that, we can also notice how hard they can be, and that can help us to see help us to see kind of what are some of the messages that come up for me when I think I'm actually going to interrupt this and say I have to go to the bathroom. I'm going to stop this person and say, you know what? I need to check my phone because I'm worried about X, Y, Z thing. What comes up when we think about doing that? And what I like to do is write those things down and spend some time with them. Oh, why did that come up for me? What might that mean for me? What are some steps I can do to support myself as I sit with that question? And discovering what things, and part of the reason I want to go through this too, is I could say, I think people should meditate and people should go to yoga, but I don't think that. I think people would be best served by discovering the things that serve their bodies in particular. Like, What does your body need and want? And, and really, again, experimenting with giving that to yourself and what it means to give that to yourself and how does that feel for you? Because I really believe the more comfortable a person is, this is my experience too, with themselves and your own discomforts, your own challenges, your own pain, 
your own needs, then the more able you are to listen and receive when other people are expressing theirs. Because if you haven't been able to take that time, sometimes when other people express their pain, what I've experienced and noticed is that there's a knee jerk of like, how dare you say that? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know what I'm dealing with? And what is in that to me when I hear that come up is, no, what are you dealing with? Have you, are you sitting with what you need? What, it sounds like you have some things that you want dealt with. Is there someone that you want to bring that to? Is it you you want to bring that to? What can you do to support yourself? Because it can just feel enraging uh, for people when you see someone else speaking their pain when you have not gotten an opportunity where you feel like you haven't or you haven't gotten an opportunity to be seen, noticed, held, and supported for your own pain. And I'm not saying that from a place of, um, therefore, if someone's shutting you down for your pain, just remember that they have pain too. I'm really not. That is true. You can remember that if it does something for you. But, and, and I do think that is true. But it doesn't actually change the outcome. If you want to be a person who is aligned with values of, equity and justice, then you'll need to be open to the ways that you might be perpetuating inequity or injustice because we are all we have. Mm. And all these institutions are made up of people. And if everyone could start doing that work, then things could change because it's up to us. Mm -hmm. It's up to us. And when certain people are not willing or, ab or able, and I really mean, you know, you have a lot of experiences that have just caused a lot of gunk and back up and so you don't have the space to reflect on yourself. That can happen. Mm -hmm. But then you might need to move out of the way when the time for change comes and you can't get on board with it. And if you can't reflect enough to see I have to move out of the way, then people might move you out of the way. Mm -hmm. And hopefully in that process, you'll notice. I'm getting moved out of the way. There might be some stuff I need to look into. But, you know, and we all have that in different ways. I think it's easy to think of a very particular example of that, but we all have ways that we bring ourselves down and each other down. And so I just want to encourage us all in that work without whitewashing or pretending there isn't a cis hetero patriarchy with many other things that I didn't name that could be such a long interlocking systems mm -hmm. of oppression we'll just say because I think sometimes um, at least when I receive sometimes people sharing hurt people hurt people and we all have work to do it can become very um, neutralized therefore there's no oppressors in the room no because what it means that hurt people hurt people is you might have something inside that's hurting and you are causing harm to other people and you should care for yourself and we don't have to dehumanize each other to say you're no longer fit for this role. Mm -hmm. You might not be, you know, this is not a space for you. The way that you are holding yourself and your ideas about the world, the way those are manifesting are extremely harmful to people and so you have to move out of the way. And I hope for you that you are able to move through this but you gotta go. Sometimes that is what it is. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Risa, for that beautiful interview with Rebecca Kelly G. I learned so much from that. I remember um, when we were preparing for 
for this interview, you and I talked about a little bit about uh, your connection to sound and to music and how you have this personal relationship to that, especially when you talk about um, emotionally reg- emotional regulation. So I would, I would love to hear a little bit more about that and that connection to music and sound, especially in a response to Rebecca's soundscapes. Yeah. Um, I, I know that my entire life I've used music as a way to identify and frankly, just feel my emotions. Um, you know, I can think of so many examples of this, but certainly like as a child, I was afraid of the dark. Um, music helped me like work through that fear in order to sleep in a very tangible way. Like I, I remember just kind of like a, a watershed moment when my parents and I realized that it would really help me to just have the radio on all night long mm. um, and that it wouldn't keep me awake. In fact, it would sort of, again, kind of alleviate that fear and allow me to sleep. Um, and certainly there, I can think of so many instances where, you know, joy was enhanced through listening to specific songs. Um, my college friends and I have long had a tradition at each other's weddings where uh, we play All My Friends by LCD Sound System. Um, and that's just a way for us to, to celebrate together always. So, you know, music and sounds are things that I'm really sensitive to. Um, and again, as we're saying, you know, really used to, to process my emotions in a way that I think um, allows me to be more grounded. That's really beautiful. I relate to music in the same way. So thanks for sharing that. Um, this interview was so exciting for me because I'm such a big fan of Rebecca Kelly G. I've had a chance to take uh, one of her workshops through Art New York and also participate in the Room to Breathe virtual retreat this past May. Um, and I pulled a lot from both of those experiences. So I'm just curious, what is something that's going to stick with you from this interview? I think something that really stays with me, you know, as a person in a leadership role is to not be afraid to change. You know, I love my job at Art New York. I'm, I'm not trying to think about, you know, what's next or what's instead, but it's still really inspiring to hear from someone who has inhabited success in any number of roles and who has never lost her focus on how to, how to be additive to her communities and also how to, you know, be in professional roles in a way that feels authentic and honest to her um, and to and therefore you know Rebecca just seems fearless to make a change when she either identifies another way to be more present and give more to her communities or when she starts to realize you know this role that I have right now regardless of of what societal pressures I might be responding to it doesn't feel honestly me and and in order to be my best self I need to make a change. Thank you so much, Risa. It's been such a pleasure to have you, not only just for this episode, but for our earlier episode, as we mentioned, The Caregivers, Bringing Our Entire Selves. Listeners, make sure to go back and listen to that excellent episode that Risa conducted great interviews for. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. And now for an extended soundscape by Rebecca Kelly G. Embracing and embodying your unique way of being is crucial to creating a more just and equitable world. Awaken to your own significance. Hello. 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 Hello.
And that can be difficult to do because despite the popular hashtag, it's not all love and light inside. That's there too. But there's also experiences we've had that we would just rather not remember or lessons that we've internalized that now we want to distance ourselves from. And that can all be uncomfortable to hold. But we all only live in the paradigms that we know. So if we want to move others to change their paradigms, to act in a way that we feel is just or compassionate, then we need to know what that experience of change feels like. Because feelings of fear can appear when we begin to change. But there is a distinction between discomfort and danger. And the more we practice that change, the more we grow. So for the good of ourselves and the good of our collective, we want to move into celebrating, wading in the waters of our own discomfort. Because you cannot teach what you do not know. And people struggle to be what they cannot see. So if you want to make change in society, it has to start within. But it can be difficult to find the time to do that because dominant culture moves at the pace of profit, at productivity over humanity, at networking over taking the time to genuinely form a connection with another human being. It just has us go, 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 marching, trying to keep up the pace. But when we're marching like that, not listening to our own wisdom, learning from our own pain, our own challenges, our own successes, then we are susceptible to being taught the way of things from the outside. Wear this shirt so they know you're a radical. Wear these pants so they know you're professional. These people are safe, get close to them. These people are dangerous, put them away. And some of those lessons that we internalize, they're about ourselves. And many of us, to keep up with that pace, we put up a wall between ourselves and our pain. And there's no shame in that. We all do what we need to do in order to survive. We, we do what we're conditioned to do. But when it comes time to thrive and really serve our collective, from our deepest place of integrity and for us to shine, then that wall is going to have to come down. Because 
because the distance between the reality of that wish in our hearts for a more equitable world, the distance between that just being a wish and making it a reality, it is a part that wall. We have to move through the fear and see what lives here. How have I internalized those messages of hate and division and turned them towards myself, to myself? And how might I be perpetuating that towards others? Grab it. Move it through. Push it to the side. Make space for your humanity to grow. Are well and look at the ripple effect recognize the value the people you touch the things that you do we're all connected affected by you and so the work that you engage in it is not only personally transformative though it is for our collective it could be it is transcendent with our love, 
We walk with our challenges. We walk with our pain. We bring our whole humanity to the table. And we do that with our heads held high. As within, so without. Nothing comes for free. I'm going to take care of me so I can take care of you and we can take care of we. The time is now. The path is clear. Nothing comes for free. Take care of you. I'll take care of me. And we can take care of we. We can take care of we. We can take care of we. you enjoyed this episode if you have remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts visit our dutch new york to learn more about our many programs and offerings including our very own what's off podcast until next time at art new york we empower our community to define their own vision for success and always keep an eye out for what's next our responsive resources just like this podcast illuminate truly innovative solutions to the toughest challenges facing our field you can support the next wave of theatrical innovation by visiting our website at art-newyork.org donate to make a donation today thank you what's off is a production of art new york executive producer david e shane associate producer erica ray barnes Line producers Ashley J. Hicks and Nikki Maggio with audio engineering by Catalene Media. Music